This is Mises Weekends with your host, Jeff Dice. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to our Mises Weekend. So as you can see, we're joined by an old friend, Jim Bovard. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you know his name from over the years, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, among other. And, and of course, he's written some, some great books of his own. But most recently, you'll probably know his name from both The Hill and USA Today, where he is a featured columnist. And Jim, uh, it's, it's good to see you. How are you doing? Okay, doing good. Hey, Jeff, thanks for having me back on the program. It's always fun. Well, as, as our title day indicates, we're talking about this damnable topic, the politicization of America. And I thought you were a perfect guest because you've been in and around Washington, D.C., in and around public policy, in and around the administrative state for, for so many years. And, you know, Jim, these Kavanaugh hearings, they're bringing it home. Obviously, Trump it has been the culmination of something very ugly in America in a lot of ways. But this Kavanaugh hearing, this really seems like we've sort of ratcheted it up and there's there's sort of a new low in, in how the two teams in tribal America are determined to see this thing, i.e. what Kavanaugh might have done 30 years ago at a teenage party. Yeah, well, it's, it's disappointing to me because I was hoping this process would help restore faith in the government and in the uh, Supreme Court, but it doesn't seem to be working <laughs> yeah. out that way. Yeah, I'm uh, sure that I'm sure that was a great hope of yours. Huh. It's it, it's fascinating how this has become like an onion, and we're peeling off layer after layer of BS. And uh, you know, about an hour before this was taped, you know, the lawyers for uh, Ford out in California suddenly announced, "Well, she's willing to testify, but Monday is arbitrary, unlike the other six days of the week." Uh, so uh, and. I want to be clear. Um, we don't know the facts of the matter, and if if Kavanaugh did, um, you know, sexually assault her and lie about it, that's a horrendous crime. But you know, they haven't given us much to chew on aside from her declaration, which she won't even swear to. So, but it's it, it, you were talking about the tribal warfare of the um, uh, two parties. What's fascinating to me is how easily this turned into a tribal warfare of the two genders especially on um, a lot of the feminist activists are kind of, you know, trying to have a, uh, trying to, uh, are, are talking and writing as if there is collective guilt by all men because uh, some guys are bastards. Uh, a lot of guys have done crap in the past and gotten away with it. Therefore, okay, here's one. Let's, you know, let's tar and feather him. Right. And, and he's also a privileged white guy, went to apparently yep. a prep school in Washington, D.C. He went to some Ivy League colleges. So if he doesn't become Supreme Court justice, uh, boo-hoo, uh, he'll, he'll still be okay. This is the kind of thinking that we're stuck with apparently now. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's been disappointing to me that there wasn't more focus on uh, Kavanaugh being a baseball fan because I thought that was sufficient yeah. to disqualify him. But um, you know, there's a, there, it's fascinating to see the standards of evidence being used here, especially by the, the, a lot of the supporters of Christine Ford, because uh, all these, all these uh, memes on, face, on Twitter and elsewhere, like, I believe her. Well, you know, it would help if she knew what year it was. Yeah. And, I mean, it's so basic. And maybe, it, you know, if she was assaulted, I hope that justice can be done. But. She is. She's given us so little information, and yet there's a, the, the sanctimony and the uh, you know push button hatred is uh, you know uh, jaw dropping. But, but what's odd here, 
or what's unsettling here is that the things we ought to be focusing on as liberty-minded people is that he, it turns out he's particularly bad on presidential authority. He's particularly bad on the Fourth Amendment. He's particularly bad on surveillance and wiretaps. He's particularly bad on torture. Uh, he's particularly bad on FISA court issues. And, and well, all of this is almost, th th this is almost, and it won't even be considered. It's, it's beyond the scope of the conversation. Well, yeah, I mean, those are grave issues, and th those are reasons he, he should not have been nominated. Uh, I mean, there was a, a female judge, Barrett, who would be a lot better, uh, and she's more independent, and she's untainted. And uh, Trump would have been far smarter to go with her, and it'd be, make for a much better Supreme Court. Um, it's disappointing that the, the issues that you raise uh, had no sticking point in D.C., aside from Judge Knapp and about three other people. Uh, maybe a few people on the Hill pissed and moaned about it, but most of the Democrats were attacking Kavanaugh for other reasons, right. and most of the GOP supporters are uh, are you know either cheerleaders or, or are complicit in the same thing. It's fascinating how the um, how the ethics record of the Bush uh, George W. Bush administration has gotten whitewashed. There was a guy Richard is it Painter uh, who was uh, a Senate candidate. Uh, up in Minnesota, and he was touting himself as a chief ethics legal officer in the Bush White House. How the hell did that that did not disqualify him from any appearance in uh, you know civilized life? I don't know, but you know uh, the um, uh, Kavanaugh was apparently uh, tight with John Yoo, or at least he knew him mm -hmm. and had no objections. Uh, John Yoo should be a poison pill. Yeah, it's it's absolutely true. Yeah, and here's the thing is that both sides, and, and I think somewhat fairly so, view the Supreme Court as a life and death matter. You've got these nine monarchs. They're appointed for life. And in, in that sense, they have more power than a president. So um, one, once we swallow the idea that the Supreme Court makes laws for us, <laughs> top-down laws, uh, then we, we, we're forced to care about the Supreme Court, whether... Uh, because it cares about us. Yeah, Thomas Jefferson had some wonderful lines about he was horrified to see how much power the Supreme Court was capturing early in the uh, nation's history. It, it's actually, a, a lot of folks, there's been some excellent articles on Mises about how this is uh, indicative of the Supreme Court having too much power. It's also indicative of how the entire government is far too uh, domineering over the American people. And uh, you know, watching the uh, the fights back and forth, especially over the last week, it struck me that statism makes people stupid because people are using standards of evidence in this case that few people would use in their daily lives for people who they knew unless they were really angry at their spouse. Right, right. It becomes a, a sense where the ends justify the means because we're in a war and, and war has uh, winners and losers. It has spoils. And when you're in a war, you don't much care about whether things are fair or just or according to, a, to or, or comport with a particular process that we'd like to think of as the rule of law. It just becomes win. Yeah. And uh, to take a parallel to that, there was a wonderful line from one of the Godfather movies in which the Godfa Godfather devised, never hate your enemies, it affects your judgment. And there's so much hatred out there. Um, you know, it's pouring in the streets at this point. It's pouring out in Capitol Hill at this point. And, you know, folks don't realize that uh, basically once you start chanting and thrusting your fist in the air, you know, your objectivity is not so good. Well, you know, Murray Rothbard has this great quote from 1970 
where he talks about under socialism, all life becomes politicized. And yep. it, it feels like as America gets more and more statist, more and more collectivist, that this is just an this is just a new feature. This is just a new reality in America that we have to look through everything through this lens of race and gender and politics and power and patriarchy, uh, and that this is how things are going to be going forward. Well, if that's true, it's going to get a heck of a lot uglier, and it's you know it's already surprising how ugly it's become. Yeah. Um, people using these these lenses, it's just amazing how much. Uh, uh, the, the sense of righteousness and the sense of collective guilt on the other side of the barricades. And uh, as I said earlier, uh, there are a lot of guys who are bastards who got away with a lot of bad stuff in the past. And, you know, if there's a way to charge them, fine. Um, but this whole notion that a mere accusation, uh, not even tied to a year or a place, is sufficient, it's like, what next? Yeah. But. But how is this happening? How, why are things so political when if we really look at the two major parties, which are now run by neoconservatives and neoliberals, there's not a lot of difference between them at all in terms of policy and especially not just stated policy, but actually enacted laws. I'm not sure that, that from a pure, purely legislative perspective that the Donald Trump administration is doing things all that differently than a Hillary Clinton administration would do things. We're still in Syria. We're still in Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan. We're still in Yemen. Okay. Taxes and re regulations might've been cut slightly, but other things have increased. Um, they're both bad on, on monetary policy. So this is, this is overwhelmingly about tone. It's overwhelmingly about tenor and it's overwhelmingly about, uh, race and gender and identity as opposed to actual policy differences. So how, 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 how does this become such a war when there's, there's not a dime's worth of difference at the end well, of the day? Yeah, some good points you make, but to take a couple steps back, uh, I think if Hillary had been elected, that instead of having these stupid bases in Syria that we might be actively trying to topple the Assad regime, uh, we might have done more aggressive action against Iran We'd be we probably have a hell of a lot more conflict with Russia, and who knows how how that would play out. Um, Trump has done a huge number of stupid and unjust things on foreign policy. We've killed a lot of innocent people abroad under his uh, reign. Um, I think that there is an attitude. Um, you know, maybe I'm uh, reaching for straws here, but it's healthy to see an open conflict between the the White House and some of the most powerful federal agencies like the FBI and CIA. And that might be one of the legacies of Donald Trump. I mean, it's encouraging that Trump is, is encouraging a lot of people to doubt or question the FBI claims that never would have questioned them before. Um, I, don't, I don't recall uh, Ronald Reagan doing that, and Richard Nixon certainly didn't. So uh, it's not a reason to trust Trump, but it's possible that out, out of some of these wars, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a little bit like with the, the wars of the Reformation. Uh, uh, horrendous things, but out of that came, you know, more of a space for individuals to live their own lives. Yeah. And I noticed though, that while we're busy worrying about <laughs> talking about a teenage party that Brett Kavanaugh may or may not have attended, you know, in the meantime, Jim, look what goes on. The, so the DOD appropriations bill was just passed by the Senate it's six hundred and seventy-five billion dollars, more the same. It was ninety-three to seven 
was the vote. Fortunately, I see that Rand Paul and Mike Lee voted no on it. But I mean, it, it's it's just amazing that it, while we're preoccupied uh, with this stuff that that triggers us emotionally, the the actual dark side, the nitty gritty of, of almost a trillion dollars, really, when you get into all the State Department funding, et cetera, beyond just the DOD appropriations, but the almost trillion dollars we spend a year on on mucking about with the rest of the world uh, goes un, unquestioned, almost unnoticed. Yeah, it's it's frustrating. Okay, there's a, a lot of attention right now on whether or whether or not there was an assault at a party in Montgomery County, Maryland, sometime in the early 1980s. But in the last few weeks, the U.S. has probably been involved in drone strikes that have killed a lot of innocent uh, teenagers, male, female, whatever. I mean, uh, there's a lot of carnage which we're uh, which we're unleashing, but it almost never has a human face. And because it doesn't have a human face. You know, people, uh, you know, pay attention to uh, the Supreme Court hubbub and, and the end of the baseball season. Yeah, I know, you know, you've been around some of the administrations in Washington over the years. Uh, it, it's interesting if you read Bob Novak, the late Bob Novak, the, the Prince of Darkness, as he used to be called. Uh, he really identifies Watergate, the Watergate era, as when Washington changed irrevocably. It went from kind of a sleepy backwater where members of both parties and both chambers and the administra various administrations would kind of get along and have a, a code between them to something where things started to become politicized and people became suspicious of one another. Now, as libertarians, of course, we think the whole thing's a bit of a charade, but it's it's interesting to me um, as someone who does have an interest in politics to to think of, of Watergate as a watershed moment. Of course, now we look back on that, Jim, and some DN some operatives breaking into a, a, into the DNC headquarters to rifle through a filing cabinet. It sounds quaint <laughs> today. Well, it yeah, sounds like nothing. I mean, yeah, I mean it's uh, it's it's definitely dwarfed by what Edward Snowden revealed uh, five years ago. I mean, uh, you know, one of the one of my favorite things that Snowden uh, uh, put out was that the um, there the NSA has something called X key score, which they can target individuals. And vacuum up all their email, and the uh, it's uh, it's very flexible as far as what they can target people for. If someone is searching for suspicious stuff on the web, mm -hmm. boom, the NSA can vacuum up their email. So if someone's looking at Mises, yeah, but I mean, there was there was some hubbub on this. Snowden got some credit; he deserved a hell of a lot more. Um, but this is not an issue in DC uh, because the government wins. So. How do you think we get out of it? In other words, the, to, to make society less politicized, less rancorous, we have to make politics matter less, which means we have to reduce the size and scope of the state. The state's been going the other direction. Uh, it, how, how do we get out of this? How do we ratchet it down? Well, people need to realize that the government is one of their most dangerous enemies. And people still have this blind faith that government is going to do them good. That's part of the reason for the increased faith in socialism. Folks think that vesting vast arbitrary power in politicians who lied to win office, that these same folks are going to turn around and do you, uh, you know, confer vast benefits on you, aside from canceling your student debt. Um, there, there is a naivety there. I mean, it's, it's frustrating to me to see the conservatives, see a lot, a lot of the uh, GOP uh, clamoring in favor of tariffs and torture, at the same time, a lot of the Democrats are clamoring in favor of censorship and socialism. 
And it's indicative. I mean, it was only a few years ago we were hearing about the arrival of the libertarian moment. And and I'm thinking, you know, I hope you had a stopwatch, you know, with a very finely tuned because otherwise you, know, you missed it. And I don't think people realize how incredibly bad a lot of these terms of the uh, political debate have turned against people who like freedom. Because, again, they torture tariffs versus censorship and socialism. And either one of those is uh, vesting vast arbitrary power. And, you know, if people haven't learned to distrust politicians by this point, you know, I almost get cynical about their learning curve. But, you, you know, at the Mises Institute, we talk a lot about political subsidiarity, about decentralization, about breakaway movements, secession. And we get a lot of grief for this. People say, oh, no, no, they want a universal libertarianism, not just in ethics or normative uh, aspects uh, that, that Rothbard talks about, but a, but a universal political libertarianism. And I look at the landscape and I say, you know, it's just a long way off. It takes 70 million votes to win the U.S. presidency, for example. Uh, Ron Paul and Rand Paul were getting 2-3% uh, in, in, in some primaries. So, uh, you know, Mises had this great quote where he basically says, you know, having to belong to a state as a member, as a citizen that, uh, of which one does not wish to belong is no different if it's the result of an election or an invasion. In other words, that's a great quote. In other words, a lot of people uh, on the on the left today, a lot of progressives feel like they are under occupation by the Trump regime. They they uh -huh. that may seem hysterical, but nonetheless they feel it. You know, but both sides just want this overarching top-down victory where they control the Supreme Court, they control the House, the Senate, they control the administration, and they sort of lord it over the other side. But nobody wants to talk about what do we do with politically vanquished people? What do we do with that 30 or 40 percent that has to lose? I mean, even today in the former Soviet Union, there are old people who pine for the communist days. <laughs> Uh -huh. <laughs> who think it's better. V politically vanquished people don't just go away. So so what do we do with them? I mean, what do the two sides say? Should they die? Should they be killed? Should they be put in camps? I mean, nobody wants to talk about this, but yet subsidiarity, federalism, secession is, is the humane approach to dealing with what seems to be these intractable differences in worldview. Yeah, I think far more of a federal system would be good if people want to secede. Maybe they'll go better than it did in 1861. Um, there are a number of parts in this country where there's a, where there's a you know, a mass of folks who have a lot more affection for individual liberty than the average American, and those folks should be able to get the breathing room. I mean, I, I guess part of my part of the reason I'm not optimistic right now is that uh, there have been so many government outrages in the last uh, in recent decades. And, you know, it seems as though there was almost a statist sea change after 9-11 that uh, so many Americans completely lost their bullshit radar in politics. Government was put on a pedestal. For a lot of Americans, it's still there. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many butts and boobs a TSA squeezes for no reason. It, it doesn't matter how many um, uh, government wiretap schemes are exposed. It doesn't matter how many bogus wars that we help launch abroad, Iraq, Libya, Syria. Um, you know, there's this faith in the government, almost like a supreme protector. Um, so as long as people have that blind faith, 
it's hard for me to see how any solution is going to work. But I mean, it's, it's great. Y'all are trying and, you know, I'm certainly, you know, plugging away with my articles and stuff, but uh, it's hopefully things get better. <laughs> well, I want to talk about Barack Obama a little bit, too, because we've spoken at length about Donald Trump. But you had an article in USA Today, I believe, just a week or so ago, uh, saying that Obama was no angel when it comes to some of the rifts that we're dealing with now in the post-Obama era. Yeah, well, it's it's funny to see the media attempting to put a halo back over his head, betray him as a, a savior. It's almost like we're going back to the uh, campaign poster in 2008, which portrayed him as Jesus. Um, but keep in mind, this is someone who ran on a peace platform and bombed seven nations. This is someone who, uh, as a candidate, was opposed to uh, warrantless wiretaps that were illegal, and he expanded the NSA wiretaps, and then he lied about it after Snowden exposed it. This is someone who claimed to, to have a respect for you know the Constitution, separation of powers, but, but, but when Congress did not kowtow, he relied on bureaucratic bulldozing, as the New York Times said, and these endless executive orders, and his, and his guidance letters on practically everything, I mean, that was just bureaucrats mm-hmm. pulling stuff out of the back of their pockets uh, and dictating to America and causing havoc far and wide. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to see to see the myth of Obama because yeah. he was not an effective president. He was rolled on a lot of different issues. Uh, he cast his, uh, cast his principles overboard very quickly. Um, I mean, he was... He was um, President uh, President Obama helped make America an impunity democracy in which the rulers can do whatever they please. Yeah. So so in that sense, there was no hope and change. There was just a continuation of, of, of executive authority. Last question for you. You've also written something lately about the sainted John McCain. I, oh, I wonder I how much the foreign policy uh, mentality that he personified um, – the U.S. Empire. I wonder how much of that sort of denudes our spirit at home and, and makes us more accepting of of government excesses at home domestically. Yeah, that's a good question. One of the real uh, takeaways from the funeral service of the National Cathedral was uh, that, that was about was, a week's worth of funerals, if I remember. <laughs> yeah, there was there was someone uh, commented on uh, online. That, you know, there was that it only took three days for Jesus to be crucified, buried, and rise again. <laughs> But, you know, here we are in the eighth day of John McCain's, uh, you know, eulogies and funerals. Um, it, it was fascinating to see the entire D.C., almost the entire D.C. service, and just, you know, close ranks and, you know, uh, you know shed bogus tears and all that. Uh, but c- certainly uh, John McCain unleashed a lot of foreign policy poison. Um, it was encouraging in 2000, uh, the uh, primaries, when George W. Bush trounced McCain, who was jabbering about his rogue state rollback, which I was pleased to see a lot of Americans realize was this complete idiocy and dangerous nonsense. After 9-11, George Bush adopted that, and we've been up Schitt's Creek ever since. Well, Jim, I I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, if you're not familiar with Jim Bovard, you need to be. Uh, You can find him at jimbovard.com, G-I-M-B-O-V-A-R-D. You can find him in the Hill frequently. You can find him... I want to say maybe every other week in USA Today, and you'll also find him on Twitter, so be sure to follow him, and have a great weekend. Thank you, Jim. 
Subscribe to Mises Weekends via iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, or listen on Mises.org and YouTube.